Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The 20th Amendment to the Constitution, the chair declares the second session of the 117th Congress adjourned. Sinai die. <laughs> and with that, Speaker Pelosi has hit her last gavel. And now the vote for a new speaker begins. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing. That says Kevin McCarthy is going to make this happen. As early as this morning, I'm like, I, I take a look. I'm hearing a lot of a lot of moving lips. Blah 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 blah. blah. I'm hearing a lot of that, but I'm not hearing um, anything that sounds rational. To we have another option. Let me say it again. I have no problem with an option. To Kevin McCarthy. But no other option has been presented. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY-833-468-8669. That is the number. Good to be back. Let me share a little bit of what's going on with you out there. You have got... People like Representative Scott Perry saying as early as this morning, all right, there's still a path for me to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Sure, Congressman, so you had a meeting last night. One of, according to Punchbowl, what you said was one of, your, one of the things you wanted was you wanted to be able to place the House Freedom Caucus members on committees before the speaker election. And he said, no, I can't do that. Well, Steve, this is how this works. Did that happen? are made prior... Prior to the speaker's election, once the speaker becomes elected, then promises aren't kept and there's nothing you can do about it. You got to know, and I'm sure you do, that the speaker's position is incredibly powerful. Determines all committees, who's on committees, who chairs committees, and the things, the policies that come out of committees. Kevin has been in leadership for 14 years. And nobody came to this town saying, well, Washington is doing great. We we don't want to change anything. It's the status quo. The sure. only way to change the status quo is to either change how we do things or change the people that are doing so. Things. If you don't know who Scott Perry is, it matters because he chairs the Freedom Caucus. And the Freedom Caucus is engaged in a very big power struggle. They see an opportunity here to be heard. Conversations about how long you have uh, to read legislation before it can go up for a vote. Uh, Pushing this idea of a no-confidence vote. Five Republican members say, hey, we're not confident in the speaker. That speaker is now up for consideration. Meaning they could be removed. And McCarthy, he, he acquiesced on that. So here you have Perry saying, if you're willing to actually make changes, we can get a vote going for you. That doesn't seem to be the case right now. As early as this morning, uh, Congressman Matt Gates was saying, yeah, I'm a no. Brief and productive discussion. How was it productive? In so far as that it was brief. (laughs) (laughs) Can you elaborate a bit more? I sure I could. I mean, has he won your support yet, Congressman? No. Why not? 
I, I think I've uh, laid that out extensively. I'll tell you what, I'll send you the speech I gave at Turning Point. I was able to extend my remarks there a little further. But it, I'm, I'm just curious, when you say productive, it didn't nudge you a bit toward yes? It was brief and productive. That's that's a different tone than you've stuck before. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> so is he giving into your uh, demands? It was a brief and productive discussion. You might vote for him tomorrow? You're not ruining it. Is it fair to say you're not ruining I'm it? I'm a no. You're a no so all of that back and forth to say that he's a no on Kevin McCarthy. And that was basically what he was saying this morning when he announced that this happened in the conference meeting of the Republicans. But we were threatened by my committee uh, chairman to be on the Armed Services Committee, Mr. Rogers, that if we did not vote for Mr. McCarthy, we would be removed from committees. Now, that has been said by others, that uh, Representative Mike Rogers has said that anybody who votes against McCarthy doesn't get a committee. Not a smart thing to say. I think that that's a politically fraught statement for somebody to make. But let's continue with Representative Gates. Our position is that if Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House and we don't have an ability to ensure that there is... Uh, oomph behind the agenda and energy behind our oversight that the committee assignments don't mean that much anyway. I'm not here to participate in some puppet show where we pass a bunch of messaging bills, send them to the Senate, watch them die, fail to use leverage, and don't hold the Biden administration accountable. I don't want to relive the Benghazi experience where it's just theater pretending to be oversight. Right? We can do better than that, and and that's our purpose today. I have no issue with this. I have an issue with Gates's performance. If you believe this, you have had a, a, at least uh, two weeks. We'll give you two weeks, three weeks to start putting something together. Who's your guy? And the answer you're basically getting from Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and others is, and I'm quoting here, they've got nothing. They've got absolutely zero. Ungats. Said another way. And I'm not interested in listening uh, to, to the crazy. Lauren Boebert is saying that uh, McCarthy has taken the path of Pelosi. So I've said from the beginning that my hard line was the motion to vacate. Single member motion to vacate. You cannot demand more responsibility and less accountability. And Kevin McCarthy was taking the path of Nancy Pelosi and following her precedence uh, with the motion to vacate. We were just told when we left this store, we will give you single member motion to vacate. Just today. That was the starting point for negotiations. That was the starting point to everything that we are wanting to transform the way Washington, D.C. operates. Now, she's a no as well. You know who's a yes? Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has been on this road for a while. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who lost her committee assignments. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Jews have space lasers is totally behind Kevin McCarthy, and she is going full throttle on people like Bobert, who you thought she was hand-in-hand with, right? Saying that the people who oppose McCarthy don't have a plan. This is accurate. 
They don't have a plan. They have anger. The problem is they're not wrong in being angry. They're not wrong in noting that Kevin McCarthy has not been a good leader. He's been an awful leader. The victory was not a red wave, ripple, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was there, though. But it puts you in this position because you didn't have enough votes to be able to give yourself a cushion. And now you got to deal with all of these people. Representative Dan Crenshaw calling these people narcissists, opposing McCarthy. This handful of members is um, uh, very clearly looking for notoriety over principle. That's what it is. And anyone who suggests differently is um, in, in some kind of make-believe fantasy reality. It's not, it's not true. They lost those debates. That should have been the end of it because that's how a team works, right? You hash this stuff out, figure it out, and then you move on. But if you're a narcissist, if you're a narcissist and you believe that your opinion is so much more important than everyone else's, then you'll keep going. And you'll threaten to tear down the team for, for the benefit of the Democrats just because of your own sense of self-importance. That's exactly what's happening. We will not vote for anyone else but McCarthy. These people think they're stubborn or more stubborn. They think they're not going to get the communities they want. Well, obviously they won't, but it's going to be so much worse than that. You know, they are enemies now. They have, they have made it clear that they prefer a Democrat agenda than a Republican one. Now, I believe that Crenshaw is correct in levels to which this will backfire on those opposing McCarthy. But only in the House. In the public view, there are going to be a lot of people who refer to Gates and Boebert and Perry of the Freedom Caucus as absolute heroes. And they're going to call Crenshaw a rhino and a bunch of others rhinos. Marjorie Taylor Greene's now going to be a rhino. Dude, uh, politics, man, it moves fast, Boo Bear. It moves fast. You, bet, you might want to strap in and get yourself some Dramamine because you think you're going one way. Bing, you're going the other. Bing, you're going the other. Boom, you're going the other. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. It's a bit of nuts. It's a bit oh crazy. Man, I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know how it's going to work out. My over-under on number of votes it takes to find a speaker, 20. Which, look, if it took two, that would be a lot. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a thing. Gonna be a thing. We're going to watch it happen. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. I hear the drums echoing tonight. She hears only whispers of some quiet So while they fight over Kevin McCarthy, She's coming in 12 Ron DeSantis... Gets inaugurated for a second term. And, well, now you can talk about whether or not he's going to be your presidential candidate in 2024 all you want. But if I'm Ron DeSantis, I'm not saying a freaking word. Not one word. Because there's nothing to say. Tony Katz, 
Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. You've got Donald Trump, who has announced. Donald Trump, who just recently said, you know, uh, the reason that uh, Republicans did so poorly in the midterms isn't because of me. It's because they mishandled the abortion conversation. Interesting. Interesting to take no blame. It's it is an excuse that is something that his most ardent idol worshipers can utilize, but does not play well. Well, somebody said that's a mountain of lies on a kernel of truth. Abortion played bigger than than even I expected. But I think if maybe if these people had played it the way I did, they would have had better results. It has to do with a fear. They are a fear of talking about the subject. I don't know why you're having fear. Seems very odd, very strange to me. Kevin McCarthy wants you to know that as the House looks to vote for Speaker, he ain't going no place. Are you going to stay in the race, Leader McCarthy? You're not yes. I'm not going anywhere. Are you sick? No, I just went. Uh, can I trade places with you? Uh, we, we did have an intense conference, and it's intense for a purpose. We have worked for a long time. I've been leader for four years. I came into this position, and we had less than 200 members. We are now sitting in the majority. We put forth to the American public a commitment to America. There's times we're going to have to argue with our own members if they're looking at for only positions for themselves, not for the country. For the last two months, we worked together as a whole conference to develop rules that empower all members. But we're not empowering certain members over others. Last night I was presented the only way to have 218 votes if I provided certain members with certain positions, certain gavels, to take over the church committee, to have certain budgets. And they even came to the position where one, Matt Gates said, I don't care if we go to plurality and we elect Hakeem Jeffries and it hurts the new frontline members not to get reelected. Well, that's not about America. And if Gates's plan is to say, well, you know what, I'm screwed anyway, so I might as well just put it all out there and take the hits, but I'll get the love from the other people. And when I don't get reelected or something like that, at least I have a lot of speaking gigs. Okay. But there's no win in his approach unless he believes that there's no, there's no stick. It's all carrot, no stick. There's nothing that can hurt him. Representative Matt Gates of Florida opposed to Kevin McCarthy in saying, I'd rather have Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat minority leader. Meanwhile, Sonny's asking me a question on Twitter as we take a look at who's going to be Speaker of the House. Although there are some people saying, you know what, he's got the votes. There's some solid no votes, but he's got enough. He's going to get the, 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 the gig. What good has McCarthy leadership been, writes Sonny? No one talks about that Republican Party. No one talks about that. Republican Party is unpopular because of his poor leadership. Any plan is better than his. Now let's say that that's true. Let's state, Sonny, that that is 100% true and that anything would be better. You would have any, any plan is better than that of Kevin McCarthy. If that is indeed the case, here is the question before us. Why is there no one else who's being thought of or who can get enough votes to be the Speaker 
of the House. What's the issue? Why don't they have the votes? You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> You're gonna need congressional approval and you don't have the votes. They don't have the votes. So if anything is better, why don't they have it? Why is it nothing from anybody who can challenge him? This is what I was discussing earlier. I have never been anti-Mac Gates. I was never pro-Mac Gates. Just whatever. He's going to vote the way I like, and, 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 I, and it's good enough. This was remarkably ignorant of him. I, oh, I would tell him nose to nose. What, I got to worry about a congressman? You work for me. Now go fetch my latte. You are opposed, you're opposed. You want to be opposed principally. I'm sorry, I can't vote for this man. Okay. I'd rather have Hakeem Jeffries. That, I the, the statement I'd rather have Hakeem Jeffries is a never Trump statement. And if you're a never Trumper and you think he's ridiculous, that's how you sound. You know, in in the immortal words of Dave Chappelle, that's you. That's what you losers sound like when you talk about Never Trump. You sound like Matt Gates talking about how he would rather have Hakeem Jeffries. See what kind of putts you are? Glad we could glad we could discuss it out. So the vote will happen and the things will happen. It certainly looks like it's going to be uh, Kevin McCarthy, but uh, we will wait and we will watch and we will see and we will figure it out. In the meantime, there's more that's happening than just this vote for speaker. China remains the threat. Never mind the COVID threat, and I'll get into that. The military threat, the technology threat, the thieving threat, the violence threat. Now, how is Biden supposed to work this? How is he supposed to handle this? Is he even aware of what the threats really are? Stephen Yates scheduled to be with us to break down what is next in the back and forth with China and how we fix it, how we deal with it, how we fight back against it. And is there any leverage we can put on anybody else to ensure that China has a very bad, awful, terrible, miserable year? I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. reports China controls 80% of rare earths. Those are the ingredients Ben was talking about in production and refining. That goes into generators for wind turbines. China controls 61% of global lithium refineries for battery storage and electric vehicles. You can't go green right now without 
China. It's true. And uh, deglobalizing was inflationary enough. Buying new stuff was inflationary. If you're going to put new infrastructure in place, it has a, as a financial cost. How are we going to do this uh, without going through China? Well, the answer is we can't, not right away. If this is your focus, how do you deal with China 2025? How do you deal with China going deep blue? How do you deal with China's continual theft of intellectual property? How do you deal with China quite literally engaging in the kidnapping of people, not letting them leave the country until they give up certain pieces of information? If what you're worried about is going green, Tony Katz, good to be with you, Tony Katz, today. Stephen Yates joins us right now, Senior Fellow and Chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. And I had come across this story over at News Nation. Biden taking tougher stance on China in 2023. And I take a look at that. And I then follow it up with the video clip or or the audio for you guys that I just shared with you. And you're like, well, how in the world do you square the circle? So let's start with a baseline. Uh, Stephen, you serve as the uh, senior fellow and chair of the China Policy uh, Initiative. You uh, worked, of course, as president of Radio Free Asia. You spent time in the White House as deputy assistant, the vice president, Dick Cheney, for national security affairs. Do we have the right basic approach to China if green is on our agenda? Uh, We absolutely do not. Uh, And there are several layers to what the problem is, but it really begins with a failure to recognize that what China has today should have one of those stickers of America saying, I did that, because uh, the trillions of dollars of investment that went in, the trillions of dollars in technology transfer that went in, the willful movement of supply chains to China as a global manufacturing hub for the world, that was not done by miraculous policy decision-making by the Chinese Communist Party. That was done by a globalist ideology in the West, led by the United States. And so if we put ourselves in this position, uh, you have to begin with, then we have the ability to take ourselves out of that position. But if our goal is going green over all else, it also doesn't make much sense to rely so much on China because they don't care about quality, humanity, standards, transparency, any of the things that should matter if someone scientifically believed in going green, because China most certainly is not. So so one of these conversations is about the ideology, uh, the progressive, the, the political left's ideology, the Biden administration ideological desires, which absolutely seem to come into conflict and surpass reality. The other one was this from Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and this is the quote. We are facing a competitor, meaning China, that is determined to overtake U.S. technological leadership and willing to devote nearly limitless resources to that goal. Sullivan then referred to it as the, quote, protect agenda, unquote. If you're in the conversation of protection, that's a totally defensive position. You're telling me there's nothing in this administration that is on offense trying to thwart China and China's China's goals, which are very, very damaging to the world, never mind just the U.S.? 
No, you're absolutely correct. These are the two sides of the dilemma that the administration and those who think like them in both parties have put themselves on. Uh, I don't think it's a dilemma that a majority of American households struggle with. Uh, once we know that there is a government that lied about and transmitted a virus that killed millions of people and stole trillions of dollars, once we know that the the United States and our families and businesses have become so dependent on critical goods coming from China and their unreliable government, uh, and the, gov- the government of China itself openly declaring the United States is not its friend, it's at best a competitor, but they're actually more honest than our leaders. They say outright that they seek to overtake us, that they are at odds with us, and they mean to defeat us. Uh, and when they say uh, when they when they refer to us, they mean our American way of life, such that we've known it. So uh, this is not, as uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan says, an era of competition. This is an adversarial conflict, a war of sorts. It's just war by other means. And our only choice is, are we going to sober up and respond, or are we going to pretend that we can send John Kerry to negotiate the climate deal of the century, at the same time sort of protecting us some of the time from the worst manifestations of China's attacks? Talking to Steve Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair, China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Give me a rundown. Give me a breakdown. When we talk about what China is trying to accomplish, it's always comes off as this boogeyman conversation. Get into specifics. What is it that you are seeing that has you and others concerned? Well, number one, they active. Number one, they gratefully accept all that we give them. <laughs> That's kind of an irony of the whole situation. They know that they're completely dependent on tax transfer and a permissive environment from the United States and the West generally, and they they accentuate their access to our systems to exploit or extrapolate for their own use the things that lead to their modernization. So what we're seeing verifiably confirmed in unclassified intelligence assessments that get transmitted to Congress, that China's space, sea, air, and land capabilities have all increased at rates that outpace estimates and predictions from five, 10 years prior. So we are helping them outpace us in critical national security areas. We know that they manipulate international organizations and gain votes in order to avoid transparency and accountability for them, but also to minimize the ability of the United States and others to impose sanctions or penalties when China gets caught doing things that are hostile the way Russia has gotten caught doing things that are hostile. So we know that they're moving to insulate themselves in a way to decouple themselves from the United States and the international financial system. And so under those circumstances, you have to ask yourself if they are so hell-bent on uh, trying to push forward all of these offensive national security tools, offensive economic warfare tools, and at the same time insulating themselves from any kind of sanction, uh, then isn't that almost an implicit admission that what they're up to is not friendly or competitive? It's hostile. It's warfare. Let's discuss the the hostility part of it, because I remember when this 
came up, I almost want to say it was a year ago, it could have been longer, and it was about how China had launched a probe and landed uh, on the moon, and not just on the moon, on the dark side of, of the moon, and some people took this as, okay, it's, it's the moon, we've already been there, uh, this is no big deal. But for China, this is a big deal because we have reached a new stage, which is how can one weaponize the moon? NASA themselves says that China could decide to claim the moon as their own territory if it beats the U.S. to basically, um, I don't want to say commodifying, but militarizing the surface of the moon. This isn't a joke. This isn't science fiction. This is happening right now. As you see it, uh, how legit is NASA's worry? And what is the U.S. response? We saw the formation of Space Force. We haven't seen anything since, although there were some conversations today uh, about it. How does one combat this? Well, I think it's an absolute legitimate question and concern. Uh, This is something that's a very high priority for the Communist Party of China for national security, scientific purposes, but also political and sort of leadership pride purposes. It mattered a great deal to the United States to be able to reach the moon. uh, And it matters a great deal to have dominance in space. And if we're dealing with a government in China that can't be trusted to safely operate a bio weapon or biomedical research facility, why would anyone think that they would be responsible stewards of space? And so much of our modern life, including our modern security, depends on safe and reliable access to space-based assets. And so part of China's strategy is not necessarily doing everything the United States does better than the United States. It's finding ways to divide, thwart, defeat the United States uh, so that the U.S. is pulled back down below their level and pushed back from feeling as if it has an opportunity to pressure or deter China. That's what it seeks. And so the ability to disrupt in space is cheaper and easier if you have a base on the moon and if you have a lot of other satellite and other space-based assets. And so uh, that, I think, is a very real part of our life uh, that people are slow to wake up to. We are dependent on advanced chips, but we're also dependent on access to safe and reliable space assets. Talking to Steve Yates of the America First Policy Institute, senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative. The question always gets asked is, where are our allies in this? Where are other people? They recognize that China's a problem. They recognize that the Uyghur Muslims have been put under lock and key. They're slaves. They recognize that China lied about COVID, won't let loose on how COVID originated, won't share information, don't care who gets harmed. They understand that communists are liars by nature. But where are these other nations to say, you know what? We're done here. We're done with this silliness, this idea that China has this complete and total control of society writ large. Is this the truism that people won't admit, or is there a lack of fight for another reason? Well, it's a mixed bag, depending on which region and which allies and partners. Uh, When it comes to Japan, they have a much more sober assessment of what 
the leadership of China is currently doing, the national security, economic security, and other civilizational challenges that it presents. And one of the solutions to be a part of our mix is to work with allies like Japan for them to accelerate their uh, reach into space, their role in advanced technology, manufacturing, and supply chains, whether in Japan or in other parts of the world, but under their supervision. Uh, And so with Japan, we have runway that is there to develop. With uh, a partner like India, they're not going to align with us, but they deeply distrust China. And their development in the manufacturing in these spaces is a helpful way to balance what China is trying to do. I think the gravest frustration is with Europe. Uh, in that they know what these risks are. Uh, And we seem to have a repetitive conversation a la Merkel and Russia, but also just Europe and China. From time to time, they say the right words, and they seem to make baby steps in the right direction, but they don't contribute anywhere near what the scale of their economies and the magnitude of their geopolitical weight could be to trying to get this right. They leave it to America alone. Uh, And that, I think, is not an acceptable balance. And it's something that real leadership in the White House needs to be pushing much harder on, whether it's with regard to Europeans stepping up versus Russia, but even more so, Europe cannot take a pass on the risks of standing up to China with regard to manufacturing and space. So we go back to where we started. This article that I had sent you from News Nation, Biden taking tougher stance on China in 2023. Have you seen anything that shows that the Biden administration is taking a tougher stance? No, until John Kerry is removed from duty, the trump card, so to speak, in their policy is always going to be seeking an agreement with China on what they what what the Biden administration defines as the most geostrategically significant challenge of our time, which is climate. As long as they continue to see the world through that lens, China knows that they will not be success, they will not be successfully pressured or coerced into changing course. They can continue to negotiate here or there on their terms. Stephen Yates, you can find him at AmericaFirstPolicy.com, Senior Fellow and Chair of China Policy Initiative. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The updates continue about Damar Hamlin, defense back, I should say, safety for the Buffalo Bills. That Monday night football game against the Cincinnati Bengals, he is a tackle, stands up and falls down. Three seconds later, he had a heart attack. He had a cardiac arrest on the field. CPR given on the field, defibrillator utilized on the field before taken by uh, ambulance to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Uh, At the last report, sedated, in critical condition. Just crazy to witness. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. I mean, really something else. So you had a couple of things go on here. And you you realize how many things had to work 
in tandem in order for something like this to happen, for somebody to have a heart attack right there on the field. The hit itself in terms of the tackle, the the preciseness of of the hit, where the heartbeat was at that moment, uh, it's I believe it's pronounced commotio. Commotio cordis, which is a disruption of heart rhythm. The right hit at the right time disrupting the heart and therefore stopping its beating. And it's not something, I mean, it has a better than 50% survival rate based on the, the quick kind of research I was able to do. But it isn't like, oh, no, they get to you and like, like everybody survives this. No. No. First responders did absolutely incredible work. Incredible work. And hopefully uh, he lives through this and moves well on with his life. Just 24 years old. Crazy story. The vote for speaker is happening. And we will hear from the House floor soon enough. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today.